0: Welcome to the Open Deeply podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie.
1: Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Lurie, a psychotherapist of 18 years, and my co-host is award-winning sex educator Sunny Megatron. Our guest today is Andrew Gerza. Here's a little bit more about Andrew. Andrew Gerza is an award-winning disability awareness consultant and the chief disability officer and co-founder of Handy, a sex toy company that puts pleasure within reach for disabled people. Andrew uses they, he pronouns and identifies proudly as disabled. Andrew is brimming over with full tilt, lovability, humor, and naughtiness in the best way possible. So, of course, he's been featured or interviewed worldwide in popular media such as the BBC, Huffington Post, and Out.com, several anthologies, and many podcasts such as Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast discussing what it means to be, quote, a queer cripple, unquote. He was the subject of an award-winning national film, board in the Canadian documentary Picture This. He is also the host of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability storage, which was nominated for a Canadian Podcast Award, a Queerty Award, and was chosen as the honoree at the 2020 Webby Awards. Andrew is also the creator of the viral hashtag Disabled People Are Hot. Before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy or a replacement for therapy. Please know this episode has themes of emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, therapist, or emotional support hotline, such as 800-273-TALK, 8255.
2: Open Deeply is a podcast about life stories. And in these stories, we crack open our outer shells and go straight for the center of what makes us tick. Each of our guests is featured in two episodes. And in these episodes, guests tell their stories uninterrupted, zeroing in on the pivotal things that shape them. Then we devote time to analyzing those experiences and parsing out how they fit not only into our guest's big picture, but also how they weave into the common threads that connect us all. So, Andrew, before you tell us your story, is there anything you'd like us to know first?
3: My name is Andrew Gerza. I'm a disability awareness consultant. I live with cerebral palsy, and I'm a power wheelchair
2: user. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Tell us your story, Andrew.
3: This, is, this first part of the story is a story that helped me understand how disability really felt. When I was growing up, I I lived with my family outside of Toronto. And when I was growing up, they really made an effort to make sure that I was happy, healthy, and comfortable. And we knew that I was a power wheelchair user from the time I was about four. And all the things we used to do together, we would go apple picking, we would do like big family events, and they'd always make sure that everything was accessible for me as possible. In fact, they built my family home just for me because... They knew that I was obviously disabled and they wanted to make sure that I would be able to enter every single house of my family home. So we built a bungalow just for me back in like 1989 when my family had no money and somehow we did it or they did it just so that I could be included. And so that's the kind of family experience that I had growing up. We used to do things all over my small town and all over really the province of Ontario together, going on road trips, going on family vacations, all that stuff. And during that time, well, I knew I was disabled, I was kind of protected from the outside world of disability um, discrimination because of the way my family treated it. They always told me that I could do whatever I wanted to do, whatever was comfortable for me. It was never a problem. They They never shied away from the fact that I had disabilities and never pretended like I didn't, but they never said that my disability would stop me. And so I kind of went in the world very confidently knowing that I was disabled, but not really realizing that I was different. And I remember when I went to school, I was about, this story starts kind of, I was about eight years old and I had gone to school one day and I was on the playground trying to make friends as you do when you're eight. And, you know, when you're eight, you're kind of, like, shy. I, I was a really shy, awkward kid out out in the world because I knew that kids might not understand the fact that I was disabled. But I was also really gregarious and I wanted friendship. So I remember one day a girl in my class said... I, I guess I was being... I, I was probably being a brat. I was probably being... I was probably antagonizing her. I'm not going to pretend like I was some (laughs) angelic angel. I was probably being a brat somehow. And this little girl said to me, well, I hope that your whole family ends up in wheelchairs just like you and no one is going to ever want to spend time with any of you. And that was kind of the first moment where I think I recognized that disability was something people could make fun of and something people could laugh at, and something that wasn't considered to be okay. And it's a it's a memory that I remember quite vividly because she said that to me and I immediately started to cry because I didn't want to think of my family in, in wheelchairs because I knew that that was something that I had to deal with. Even at a young age, I knew that this was something that I would have to deal with. And I didn't want my family to be in wheelchairs because then who would take care of me? And I remember feeling so hurt and I didn't know what to do because I was eight years old and I didn't know how to feel about that. But that moment sticks out so vividly for me because it was really the first time that someone had truly, truly, with like true intention, um, they had truly discriminated against me and that was... That was a hard pill to swallow at eight years old. And after that... Do you remember how that felt in your body? Like when she said that? Yeah, because I, I, still, feel the, I still feel ableism occasionally from people to this day. And I can tell you exactly how that feels. It feels like you're going to cry and you want to vomit all at the same time. And you don't know what to do. And it's, it's right in the core of your chest. And it sits there. And I think anyone... Who is marginalized, whether we're talking about disability, whether we're talking about racism, whether we're talking about sexism, any kind of ism that someone experiences, I think how that feels in your body is very similar because you know that you've been wronged, but you also know that if you do anything about it to try to fix what happened, you will be, you will be considered the bad guy because the person that did the wrong to you, whether they're an eight-year-old or a 38-year-old, will say, oh, I just didn't know any better.
1: Mm.
3: And I'm sorry. And, you know, they'll tacitly apologize and hope that you move on. But those kind of things sit in your body. So at, the, at that time when I was eight, I had no idea what that felt like because I was a happy kid. Like I didn't, I never had really experienced that kind of stuff. When I was growing up, because my family had made sure that all my friends were invited to my birthday party, had made sure that I was in an integrated classroom with other kids, they made sure that I was included in everything. So even though the kids didn't talk to me so much, I naively thought that that's what kids did in school. I didn't realize that they weren't talking to me because I was disabled. I just Mm -hmm. thought, oh, they don't want to be my friends because we're eight. And like, that's what eight year olds do. And mm-hmm. I always pushed through all the feelings and tried to make friends anyway. Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm.
3: Um, and so that experience, like, I can remember exactly what she looked like. I can remember her name and I won't say it here, but I remember exactly who she is. And I don't wish her any ill will. We were eight. It was like, <laughs> she's just a kid, but it just shows you how, how, deeply those things can affect you. Mm -hmm. And I I remember it clear as day. And that incident kind of started me recognizing what ableism felt. Like, again, I didn't have words for what ableism was. And if anybody's listening, ableism is basically the discrimination against people with disabilities in favor of able-bodied people but that was the first moment where that really became a reality for me and something that I could feel in my body. And so now when I'm in, when I'm discriminated against in that way, I know what that feels like without even I don't even have to blink because it's, it's something that is interwoven in my in my self.
1: If you could go back in time and talk to little Andrew in that moment, what
3: would you tell him? I would say stop antagonizing her first, (laughs) you (laughs) little shit of a child. Because, I mean, I don't like, like, let me be clear. I was in no way an innocent little kid. I used my disability to get away with so much shit that was not okay and not very nice. And I used the, I'm a cute, precocious little disabled. When I, actually, I'll switch, I'll switch very briefly. When I was two, my mom took me to a to a physiotherapist, to a physiotherapist, an occupational therapist, to, to check out my joints and my moving and they had her in a room and me in the playroom doing something. And this would have been 1986. So they had me in this room with my mom with my mom in the other room with a doctor watching. And the doctor said, You see your son out there? She goes, Oh yeah, he's great And I only know this because she's told me this story a bunch of times and she said, The doctor said to me, Watch out for your kid he will manipulate the shit out of you. <gasps> what? And you know what? She wasn't wrong. I still will use manipulation to, in in a, in a obviously consentful and kind way now, I'll use manipulation and, and a little bit of my disability story to, to get what I need. So, but the doctor knew it too, that I was a manipulative little shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't pretend to, to think that I was this... Innocent, cherubic child that was a like was like just sat there and and this this mean able-bodied girl came up and said a thing to me. No way was that what occurred here. Um, but you know, to have somebody throw stones like that and to talk about your disability is so meanly for an eight-year-old for her to say my whole family would be in a wheelchair. I think why it scared me. At eight, and why I started crying almost immediately was because if my whole family was in wheelchairs like me, who would take care of me? I knew, kind of, when you're different, differently bodied and disabled like I am, and you need help with pretty much everything. If if your primary caregiver is ill or can't take care of you, you're kind of fucked. So I knew that if my whole family ended up in wheelchairs. Who would help me do things? How would I go on those big family vacations? How would I feel safe in my home if my mom and dad were in, were in wheelchairs like me? And I think if I really think back on it, that's why I was so upset. It was because you were telling me my primary caregiver, you wished they ended up like me, and then who would take care of me?
1: Yeah. So if you could go back there, is that something else that you would say to your little self Is Somehow that's going to
3: work out okay? I guess I would, yeah, I guess I would say to my little self also, like, don't worry, somebody will always take care of you. Which, in and of itself, is a hard thing for even me now at 38, you know, at 37 to swallow the idea that I'm 37 and even though I'm independent in a lot of ways, I still need help with getting up, having a shower, getting dressed, using the bathroom. Brushing my teeth, having a meal, going outside—all the things that most people take for granted—I need to. I need help with. So, you know, telling my eight-year-old self that someone someone is always going to take care of you feels both safe because I know what that feels like, but also I don't want to be. Part of me doesn't want to be forty-five and still needing care. If that makes any sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So then, then the principal pulled us both inside <laughs> and said, and said to me and the girl, "Hey, you guys have to stop. What what she said is wrong to you." And then I'm, I can remember the girl saying that I said something mean to her, and remember how I told you I was a manipulative little shit. Well, <laughs> guess what I tried to do. I tried to use my manipulation to get out of it and to say. I remember saying to the teacher something like oh, but she was so mean about my wheelchair and I'm just in a wheelchair and I'm, it's so sad. And the teacher went, yeah, but you said something too, didn't you, Andrew? And I, again, tried to play it off. but <laughs> And eventually they caught me and we both got t- detention or something. But I remember, I can remember doing everything in my power to make it look like I was this innocent little thing when really I was being a snot. So, <laughs> So, I mean, that is the end of that story. <laughs> um, but it it taught me what ableism feels like kind of really for the very first time. And it's something that I can't ever forget. And I hope that, you know, the next generation of children listening to that or, you know, parents of kids with dis- of kids who have disabilities will listen to that and w- check their kid to make sure their kid's not a, not a manipulative little shit. Because, you know... <laughs> <laughs> but also to nurture the fact that if their child knows they're, knows they're disabled and understands what disability means, show them that to be manipulative doesn't have to be negative, doesn't have to be this, like, seedy thing that we all do That's that's, like, mean. You can use manipulation to show somebody that disability is okay and safe and cool. And so if you're a parent of a disabled kid... Teach them that and teach them to be able to use their disability as a gift to give them a leg up when things like that happen.
1: If you think about it, manipulation is just shifting another person's point of view. So you can have good manipulation and also bad manipulation. Yeah. Yep.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, that's one of my soapbox things is, you know, good manipulation versus bad manipulation. I can imagine, Andrew, that, you know, people who are ableist, closed minded, you know, whatever negative thing that they're doing, you know, sometimes you do have to legitimately employ those manipulation skills more as persuasive skills or appealing to somebody's emotions to encourage them to open up and And listen to what you have to say. I mean, has that been a skill that, you know, you use often with people?
3: I mean, Sonny, you and I have talked before on Mm -hmm. other programs of yours. And like, you know how and for anybody listening, like, I am I have totally used manipulation to sell myself as a disability awareness consultant, to sell myself as like a sexy bear-in-a-chair sex educator that does, like, sex education on disability and sexuality. Because, you know what? Half Half the time, I don't believe it. I don't believe that I'm worthy of attention. I don't believe that I'm sexy. I don't believe that I, you know, that my disability is hot. I don't believe any of that. So I have to fake myself out in order for me to get up on a platform like my podcast or, like, a YouTube video or whatever, or the, you know, the adult films that I've done, that kind of stuff. To prove to myself, hey, you are worthy of this. Now go shut up and fucking do it. Do it. So I have used manipulation to prove to myself that my disability is okay.
1: Mm, That's awesome. I'd love to hear your next story.
3: Sure. My next story is one that I wish I could redo. (laughs) (laughs) When I was 19, I had moved away to college. And I was definitely a big queer at that point, but I had not had the chance to explore my queerness ever. So I was going to classes and I was in this big university and it was first year university on and I was I was six hours away from home. I'd never left home. I'd never left the nest of that family that I had just told you about, never once. And so the whole idea of going six hours east from my family by myself was exciting in a way that I that I that I haven't had since, and terrifying because the only person that had ever taken care of me up until that point, really and truly, was my mom, with the occasional caregiver coming in here and there to give my mom some respite. So I didn't know what it was like to be alone, and I was the most naive, innocent nineteen-year-old you've ever met in your life. Never had sex. Never kissed a person, never, like, didn't drink, didn't go to parties. Well, I didn't go to parties because I couldn't go to parties because none of them were accessible, but I didn't do any of the, like, quote unquote, like, typical teenage stuff. Didn't get in trouble, was very studious, like, they got, you know, for me, I got B pluses in school. I was very, like, I took my academics very seriously because I wanted people to think that I was smart. So the idea of being away from home, And having no one tell me no was like, what are you even saying? You mean (laughs) I can stay up till 3 a.m. and nobody will stop me? (laughs) Sure, like this is great. (laughs) So it was like very new to me because the school that I went to was called Carleton University and it's in Ottawa, Canada. So six hours east of Toronto. And it's this this really well-known Canadian school. And the reason that I went there was because they had attendant care, so personal care attendants, attached to the residence. So if you had good marks, and I had marks that were just not great, but they were good enough to get me into this program, you would have caregivers in residence, so they would take care of you. Like, like kids who were your peers, people your age, would learn how to do your bathroom care, learn how to do your care, and they would take care of you while you went to school and while you did classes and while you did all that stuff. So that's why I got to go there was because, and that's why I wanted to go there was because it was the only one in Canada at that point, the only school in Canada at that point back in 2003 that had a program like this. So when I got in, I was so excited to go there because I knew I would have new care, new care. I knew I would have new experiences and again, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school. I didn't have a lot of friends in my kind of growing up years. So I was excited to be somewhere new and to make new friends. So at this point, it was like the second or third week of the first semester. You know, you're making friends, you're doing all the things, you're being wildly inappropriate, and like you know, unfortunately for for me, it was Frost Week, which meant that everybody wanted to drink. I didn't drink. Had I had one beer on my nineteenth birthday, which in Canada is like the legal age to drink. So my mom took me to the the beer store and like got me a can of beer and, and forced me to show the person my ID. But that was the only time <laughs> that I had had a drink. Really, I don't. I don't. I just didn't like it because it made me feel, um, you know, woozy, and I just didn't like booze. So I was like, okay, I'm not gonna do that. But I was so. I had studied law in my first year, and I studied law my whole my whole way through. Um, but in the second and third week, I had had my roommate. He was also another disabled guy, and he knew I was queer, and he kind of jokingly called me faggot when we hung out. Nice guy, sweet guy. He was trying to like become my friend and show me that he, it's like that he meant nothing by it. And I now would be like, yo, don't call me that. But at that time, I wanted I wanted friends. So I was like, cool, it's fine. It's great. Um, and so I would go to school. I would go to classes in the morning. And then at night, I would go home. And one day, I was like, wait. I'm, I live by myself. I can now look for dick. The, <laughs> the dream of me sucking cock has finally, it'll finally happen. And I was like, because <laughs> when I was a teenager at home, I would go on the website, but we had dial up internet, which is like the early, early 2000s, late 90s crappy dial up internet. And so every time I wanted to look at a dude's dick, you'd have to wait five hours for it to load. And it was on my <laughs> d- dad's like phone line. And I remember like every time he would leave the house, my dad to go, he would leave me at home sometimes to go do stuff and make sure I was okay. And he would leave. And so the, I would secretly go and like, chat with dudes online and look for dick and look at porn and I would do all the things a regular teenager would do but I had to do it on dial-up internet and being super disabled and having no way of like closing the computer fast if anybody caught me so (laughs) there were so many times my dad almost caught me looking at dick but finally I was alone and free to do this with myself I was free to do this with myself and I was really excited so one night I went home to my dorm, and my roommate was gone, and I was totally alone. And I thought, okay, I'm gonna go on the computer, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna get laid, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it's gonna happen. Cause everybody around me was fucking, and I was like, well, if everyone around me is doing this, I want to do it too. Cause I want to be included. I want to be included. And if all my friends are fucking, I want to know what that's like. I'm gonna do it. So I went on this site called Gay.com which is now defunct but back in 2003 it was all the rage and where everybody well all the like secret secret gays went to like find their by themselves and all the poor closeted homosexuals went to like look for dick um and so i went there and i didn't know how to ask for sex online i had no clue so i would write messages like hello my name is andrew and i'd love to spend some time with you and i would write a bunch of these messages and of course nobody would respond because what do they what do you think they're looking for they want like quick easy sex they don't want some like really polite young person to be like come over let's have some tea and talk about our feelings and then have sex so <laughs> I did that for a few weeks and I couldn't understand why nobody was nobody would talk to me I was like why is no one talking to me about this why does nobody like Messaging me back and so finally one day my roommate comes in and his name is carl and he comes in and he goes what are you doing fag what are you doing and i was like oh i'm just uh i'm, I'm studying he's like no you're not you're looking for dick aren't you and i my face went all red and i was like yeah i kind of am <laughs> and so <laughs> he goes well what are you let, let me see here so he, and he's to, he was totally straight and not queer at all he pushes me out of the way and goes what the fuck are you writing Hello, how am I? My name is Andrew. I, w- I would like to spend some time with you. He goes, do you know what kind of site you're on? This is not how you do this. Let me Let me type this out for you. And so he pushed <laughs> me aside, grabbed my computer, and, said, um, and, and wrote in, Hi, I want a blowjob. Come over now. And of course, within 20 seconds, <laughs> my thing started to ping. And I had wow. so many messages from so many different dudes <laughs> all over the internet. Like saying, oh, I'll, I can be there in ten minutes. I'll be there in five. It's like, yes, me, me, me. And so I was overwhelmed because I didn't know what the hell to do. <laughs> and so he said, "There, there, fag. Now you'll get your rocks off there." And I, re- I remember that very clearly. And I, I was like, "Oh, thanks, I guess." And like, <laughs> I picked one. And his, I'll never forget his name was Mark. He wore the picture he had was a plaid shirt. He had brown hair. He was super like lumberjacky, which was, which was, and still is my like favorite thing um (laughs) and so he said i i like your your pics i'll come on over and looking at myself at 19 thinking of my body back then i was kind of a twig i was a twig um i had no musculature to speak of i still don't i'm kind of a potato um (laughs) like i was there, there was like looking back at myself then how the hell could you find me attractive? But okay, for sure. He was 31. So by my 19 year old standards, he was daddy for sure. Mm. Now that, now that I'm 37, I would like not call a 31 year old daddy, but at that point he certainly was. And so he said, I can be over, I can be over there in 20 minutes. I said, great. I had no idea how to do, how to have sex. So I, I remember it was 2003 and I had my very first MacBook to take with me to college so and this was still around the time when CD burning and DVD burning was a thing we did I mean we don't do it now but back in the day that was like how you anybody made it any kind of emotional like musical odyssey you want to go on that's how you did it so I (laughs) (laughs) I remember it was like 2003 and so I pulled out a blank CD and I made an Andrew's Gonna Fuck (laughs) mix i don't remember what was on it i have no idea what i put on it but i remember specifically making this mix and i was like this guy's gonna want to fuck me if i play these songs (laughs) forgetting that he's not he's 31 and i'm 19 so our musical tastes are vastly different um i and I, i never found out what his musical tastes were but looking back on it now probably what i liked was nothing what he liked so, but I thought, yeah, this will get him. <laughs> and so he came over and I was so nervous and I didn't know what to do. And the only marker for what sex was, was what I had seen in gay porn, which, as I mentioned, was when I watched it on my dad's computer, you know, on our bad dial-up internet. So I did not know anything past the weird makeup sessions and maybe some, like, rudimentary blowjob skills. That's all I had seen didn't know anything else, had no clue. And so I explained to this guy, he came over, and I didn't know, I, we barely spoke at first because I was so nervous. And he said, do you need help to get into bed? And I said, yes. And so he helped me. He, he lifted me to get into bed, and I thought that was the greatest because he was big and burly and had chest hair. And I was like, okay, this is great. We're going to, it'll be, this is amazing. Yes, yes. And so when he put me on the bed after, and I he put me on the bed and we went to start kissing. And I, of course, kissed him like I was eating his face off. <laughs> because that's all I had seen in porn was him eating. what was, you know, people eating other people's faces off. And there was no, I didn't know how to do gentle, like relaxed breathing. I had no idea what I'm doing. And halfway through the kissing, he stops me and goes, you've done this before, right? And so this is the point where he knows that I'm that I'm full of shit. And I said, oh, of course. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> and I was surely unconvincing because I just know that I was. Remember how he said I was a manipulator and full of shit? So I probably tried to put that charm on him. <laughs> and I'm, it clearly didn't work because I came in five seconds after he touched me. And I remember thinking, well, this is bad. All the porns that I've seen last 20 minutes and they don't come until the, right at the end. What, th- this is not very good. Like, And I immediately felt shame because I was like, Aww. everything I've seen tells me this is wrong. The look on his face told me it was wrong. He was surprised that I started coming so fast. He was like surprised in a, like, I don't like this sort of way.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I remember... And just being like, okay, well, stay cool, like. And I immediately started apologizing because I was like, "Oh no, I've ruined this. Like, this is horrible. I've ruined it." And so he said, "Oh no, no, don't worry." And he kissed me again, and we he tricked me off until I came a second time. So I <laughs> was very grateful for that because uh, thank God for refractory periods. I <laughs> I had more stamina the second time. Thank you, science. Um, so. Uh, we did it again. He got off too, which made me feel like a huge man because I was like, I have done it. I look good for me. I made this person come. I'm a superstar. And so, because we made each other come, I then said, looking at my wheelchair across from him, like, I'm in the bed with him and I'm looking at my empty chair and his coat is on my chair. And I was like, oh, that's really sweet. And I said, well, um, can we go on the date now? Can we, like, hang out now? And he kind of looked at me and goes, what date? And I said, oh, well, you know, you made me come, so aren't we, like, a couple now? Aren't we, like, together now? Having no idea, like, what hookup culture was and having never been exposed to hookup culture, I didn't know what I was saying. I, I just thought, well, everything I've seen in movies and everything I've seen in all these things makes me think that we're now going to go on dates. So, like, when are we going for this coffee that's supposed to come after, like, the great sex we just had? And he said, oh, no, no. I felt bad for you. I only came by because you were a petty fuck.
1: <gasps> that's horrible.
3: Yeah. I'm and so I,
1: sorry that happened.
3: Uh, it's okay. Um, Well, it wasn't okay, but it, <laughs> thank you. Um, So... I remember in that moment – no, picture this. I was naked. I was I was like – I had finished coming everywhere, so I'm naked with this dude. But I have to rely on this dude now to get me dressed again, put me in my chair, to leave safely so I feel safe. Um, And I had to let him all do this after he told me that I'm a pity fuck. And I was also mm. 19, trying to be cool and trying to be a man and trying to be like – well, I can't, I can't cry in front of him, I can't show any emotion here, I have to be super serious, and I have to be super, like, cool about it, so I was like, okay, cool, 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 like, thanks, and he put me in my chair, and, and he got me dressed, and he, like, thanked me for the good time, which, you know, now I would never fuck somebody that way, like, it was so impersonal, it was kind of gross, like, I would never, I, hookups now, ew, like, no. Mm-hmm. Um, but he thanked me and he left and he just went on his merry way. And I remember going to let him, like going to where his car was because I didn't, I was trying to be polite. So I went to where his car was and I watched him drive away and I wheeled back up to my room and I closed my door and I put on the mix that I had just made to like fuck to by the way we never used it because i was too nervous to play it but so I, I, I put on the mix of whatever like early 2003 songs were popular um and i just started to cry because i was like Aww. what the fuck just happened this is a big moment in my life and that's what you're gonna say to me that's the thing you're gonna tell me you're gonna let me know that i was just like wow and i just thought if this is what sex is I don't want to be. A, I'm. I'm not doing it ever again. Like I remember, I didn't eat for like a day and a half, which, when you're a college student, is feels like an eternity. Uh, now with IBS and all my other stuff, <laughs> that would be great. But for me, <laughs> like at that at that point, like it was a lot. And I remember, like I didn't leave my room. I didn't go to the cafeteria. I didn't see any friends. I literally just kind of sat there and watched TV and didn't go anywhere because I was like, if this. Is what sex is I am NOT having it and oh my gosh it the reason why I said that that's one that I wish I could do over was because after that experience I whored around for a few weeks trying to find somebody that would help me erase the events of that so that I could like slot in this new person as my first time and not think about the scars that this guy left me with by telling me that I'm a pity fuck and I mean I mean, that experience also goes back to, to kind of when I talked about, you know, what ableism was. It, it was another marker in my life where I realized quite clearly what ableism was and what ableism is and how it's how it, it can permeate your life and color your life. And so this is an, another moment where I realized I wasn't in the safety and in, in the nest of my family. I wasn't. I didn't wasn't protected by them telling me I could do and be whatever I wanted. This was somebody blatantly telling me you're not good enough. Mm. So I had to help you, but you're still not good enough and it's because you're disabled. And so that is something even when I have sex now some some almost 20 years later I I attribute my insecurities in the bedroom with a lot of men and I I have been told by many men in my life that I'm really clingy, that I'm really intense, that I'm really um, too much for them, that, you know, my disability gets in the way a lot. I attribute all that to this experience because it scarred me. It wasn't empowering. It didn't feel good. It wasn't great. He didn't treat me with any kind of respect. I mean, that's not true. I I mean, I I guess he did because he got me in the chair safe. But like, why would you say that to somebody right after it was it was their first time? And even though I lied to you, you knew it was my first time. You had to have known because I <laughs> could say <I> lied. but <laughs> I mean it that story makes me think about like if I could do it over, I would still do it over. i would I would want to go on a date with the guy. I'd want to go to like a movie. I'd want to get to know him. and actually, ironically enough, and I'd like, I don't know if the person that I'm about to speak about will listen to this, but the other day I went on my my second date with a person in a wheelchair ever in my life, and it was so different than that experience. And we ended up making out afterwards, but it was different because he understood what it was like to be a wheelchair user, and I didn't have to explain all these things to him. And he like we, you know, we've already talked about well, what if we get intimate together? How will we do this? And so if I could do it over. I would do it over with, an, with a disabled person. I would do it with a oh. disabled guy who understands the nuances of being disabled in a wheelchair.
1: Yeah and for people listening to this, what, do, what would you want them to take away from from this story?
3: From that story specifically, I'd want if you're a non if you're a non-disabled person listening and it's your first encounter with a disabled person, Whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're th- you want to say that you think might hurt them, even if it's just a question, be very, very careful how you word that. If you're going to say anything to them at all this first time, be very careful how you word that. And if you're going to have sex with a disabled person or you want to have sex with a disabled person, talk to them beforehand. Be like, yo, I have some questions. Can we work? Can we talk about this? Can we like? Break it down. I have some questions and I have some things that I want to chat about. But even in that, be careful how you word it because it's going to, they'll remember it for the rest of their lives, what somebody said to them. Especially sexual ableism is one that we don't often talk about
2: Mm-mm.
3: and we don't often discuss. And when you're in such a vulnerable state, not only as a disabled person are you vulnerable, but whenever we have sexual relations with anybody, whether we're disabled or not, we're vulnerable. So remember that. In those moments, your ableism can hurt even more because they're trying to show you parts of their body. They're trying to show you how their stuff works. And you're saying stuff like, oh, you were just a pity fuck. Like, so... When you're the most vulnerable. Yeah. So I would caution any non-disabled people who want to sleep with a disabled person, first of all, awesome. And as long as there's consent and love, great. But think very carefully how you word your questions about disability. And I'll, I'll, I'll preface that by saying having questions about someone's disability is, is natural. It's normal. I think it's fine, but it's how you deliver that and how you like, don't make a joke. Don't make it like a funny thing. Don't make it like, um, you know, Oh, I just wanted to know better. So, can, so like why the fuck are you disabled, like don't do that. But just say to them, hey, I really want to get to know you and I want to spend time with you and I have questions about how do we do this appropriately. Um, yeah. And I wish that that guy would have just shut his mouth because he then he would have left me, even if we never went on that date, he would have left me with an experience that it wasn't good and I'm sure it was the worst layover because I was 19 and I came in five seconds, I'm sure I was horrible, but, like, you know, he would have left me with a good memory. And now all I can think about is when he said you were just a pity fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like you still have some healing to do around that. Oh, yeah. Without question. Like, I, I you know, I haven't had sex in almost two years because of the pandemic. Um, and I'm shooting a a sexy movie next week. And I'm terrified. Not because I don't know what to do. And not because I don't. like, Not because I won't kind of fall back into it but but because of like what if this person that i'm filming this movie with sees how disabled i am and gets freaked out and doesn't want to see me anymore like Mm. what if this person stops the recording or cancels our our session or what if my body decides in the middle of a session to give out or to be extra disabled how do i handle all that and so all of that stuff that happened 20 years ago it still swirls in my head now Like it's still something that I think about now. um, and I think about how to how do I navigate that while also, you know, being trying to be a sexual being myself. How do I navigate my own fears around my disability while also being like, I want you to I wanna make out with you right now and also I also want to be hot on camera and I also wanna look, you know, worthy for you. Like how do I do all that but also let you know that I'm inside? I'm a swirling mess of fear. How do I do that?
1: Well, I think, you know, just your honesty. I mean, you're a living example of how sometimes, like, when, when we're trying to be a healer, either through being a sex educator or a sex therapist or whatever type of, I mean, in a sense that these are different types of healers, that you don't have to be perfectly fixed yourself, that a lot of times the traumas you've experienced, um, you can get some kind of meaning from it, and maybe we're still healing from that particular trauma. But then we can help other people, and I know that you've really tried to do that with your activism.
3: That's true, and I mean, I'm I. And it's funny you've mentioned that like you, you don't have to be fixed. I'm learning to share in my activism, and I feel weird saying activism because I don't feel like I'm an activist. But but in my Kind of, I'll say consulting work because that's the title that I use in my disability consulting work. I talk about on my social media. I talk about what it feels like to be disabled and some of the the pitfalls of disability and some of the pitfalls of being sexy and disabled and what that what that is like. So I think knowing that I don't have to be a hundred percent fixed and hearing someone else say that feels good, but also it's a message that so many. Disabled people have been fed their whole lives. You have to be perfect because you have to prove that you are okay. And if you don't prove that, they're going to see how broken you actually are. So you have to rise above all of that and be the best and the and work the hardest and be the strongest and all that stuff. And learning to be to be broken and like I like how you know the the title of your the kind of intro of your show is like we get to like go crack through and look at all the stuff. I love sitting in the cracks of disability and being like, this is imperfect. My experience of disability is imperfect. My experience of life because of disability is imperfect. Let's talk about that together.
1: Absolutely. Well, I, I, I think we can fit in one more story.
3: Sure. Another story, is this story is one that reminded me how cool it is to be disabled. When last year, when I was 36, my podcast, Disability After Dark, was nominated for a Queer queerty, like one of the 50 gayest best podcasts of 2020. It was no it was nominated for this big award. And I had I was like, that's cool. And, and my name was on the same list as people like Elton John and Dan Levy, and like then there's my name, which wow. felt super weird but also really cool. And then they sent an email to me like ten days before the award show, and they said, "There's an award show in Los Angeles. Do you want to go?" And I was like, "Of course I want to go." So knowing that I needed care, I called my mom. who's was my biggest supporter and will like champion me way too hard even when I don't want her to. I love her to bits and she's great. But so I called my mom and said, oh my God, mom, look, I'm on the same list as Elton John and Dan Levy. And I've been asked to go to LA for this award show. And so I said, do we go? And she said, of course we, what do you, of course we do. Like, <laughs> let me know what the dates and I'll be there. And so she immediately like, she co-opted herself as my caregiver, which is great. And I said, sure, let's go. So the, The organizing body wouldn't give me any money to fly there because of course not. But I emailed them and I explained, I have disabilities. My costs are going to be, are going to be astronomically more than the average person hopping flight. Then this was just before the pandemic, before the whole world knew, like before we were locked down for two years. This is just before all that. So my mom said, well, let's do a GoFundMe and we'll raise the money and we'll go. And I was like, okay. So I raised about four grand and I was like, cool, cool. That's enough for a flight. That's enough for like, you know, that's enough. Let's go. So then it was really, really cool. So then we got it. We literally got it. I had spoken the night before at Boston, at Tufts University. I had flown with a friend to Boston to do that gig. And then literally 24 hours later, I was in Toronto for like three hours and then I was On another plane to LA with my mom the next morning. Wow. I was exhausted, so exhausted, and of course, flying when you have a wheelchair is a whole can of worms. So you have to you have to be really you have to plan everything out to the letter. And so my friend Ryan O'Connell, who works on that TV show special and who does some really cool stuff, um, helped me get a hotel in Hollywood. He got me get a hotel at the Hollywood Roosevelt, which was like she, and cool and really awesome. And I had never been to Hollywood or LA really like this. So we flew down there and we got to Hollywood and Vine. And I remember we had my, all my stuff, my bags, my wheelchair, my commode chair, my shower chair, and we couldn't get a cab from where we got dropped off to the hotel. So my mom and I thought we would walk the trip. You have never seen a funnier pair of humans, my mom, carrying all of our luggage, (laughs) plus my shower chair, rolling over, like, the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It was (laughs) one of the funniest moments of my life. But again, it reminded me that I was disabled. And so we get to our hotel, and we realize the hotel is not accessible. (gasps) No. I can fit in there, but it's an old hotel from the 40s and 50s, right? So even though they renovated you still can't fit in there so we we dealt with it the first night the second night my mom was pissed she was like <laughs> she was like how the fuck am i going to shower you how are we going to do any of your care we can't you can't stay here so i called the concierge the night the day before my show i called her and i walked around the place with her around the pool, or around the whole hotel. And she was very kind. And I explained to her all the problems and said, you know, it needs to be this way. Blah, blah, blah. And at the end of that, she said, well, let me see what I can do. And so they couldn't fix that room. But they said, for the last night you're here, the penthouse where Clark Gable and all the celebrities go is open for the last night that you're here. Do you wow. think, as a as a thank you for... You know, letting us know what the issues are. Did you want to go in that hotel for the night? And of course, my, my mom and I, without like blinking, were like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, sure. So <laughs> we got to stay in one of the most famous penthouses in the world. Like, oh, they did movies there. Lady Gaga was there. They've done, like, like Bradley Cooper's done stuff in there. Brad Pitt stayed in there. Like, it was really cool. Wow. And so, but before we did that, we went to the award show. And on the award show, I was the only physically disabled person in the room going down the red carpet. And when they saw me coming, they had to move everything and make a red carpet so my chair could get on. And I remember thinking how powerful it was that I have all these queer celebrities were there. Like, not big, big celebrities, but big, queer celebrities, so big enough. And porn stars and people that I had seen, and all these people were there. And I was the only one. In a power wheelchair on the red carpet, and I just thought, that's fucking cool. Like that is fucking that's cool. So cool, and it, it was. I didn't win, and they, I knew I didn't win because they didn't put they didn't they didn't put a ramp up where I could, could win the award. And I knew that the minute I walked in, I was like, oh, I guess I lost. But <clears> you know, no, being there reminded me how powerful it is for me to do what I do, and how much power there is in being the only wheelchair using person in the room like and instead of looking at that as a negative being like oh where are the other people like me i took i took to that as like this is a really important thing you're doing enjoy it because you're the you can change the world for the next generation and they can see you do that and you can you can say there's room for all the rest of of my people too Mm mm-hmm
1: that that chokes me up a little bit. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. That's so powerful. Oh, wow, I I like, you know, kind of uh, the journey you've taken us on. You've taken you took us through a couple of really hard stories, but then this last story is so em- empowering, and it sounds like you've. <sighs> I would imagine, a lot of the um, strength that you have because you obviously have been hurt a lot, but you have a lot of strength. I mean. A lot of it comes from within you, but you also—it sounds like—had really amazing parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: I really do. <laughs> my bio dad is not someone that I see a lot. He's not in my life, but my stepdad George has been in my life since I was one and a half. So, and my mom also has been. Obviously, she's been there from day one. <laughs> but you know, they together said, "We're gonna, we're gonna help you." Like. So now when I go do big talks, when I go to like New York or when I go to LA or when I go to big places, the first person I call for care is my mom and say, what are you doing? You want to get, want to get paid to come wipe my ass for a day or two? Like, <laughs> come, come with me and we'll go together and we'll do stuff like that. There's also like, we also, in June of 2019, we went to New York for another award that the podcast was nominated for and we got to bump into people like, John Cameron Mitchell and like Frankie Grande was there and like oh, wow. you know, bigish celebrities and some some queer celebrities too were there and I was again the only wheelchair using person in the room. Yeah,
1: that's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. You know, and, and just with you so readily. I mean, you're just such an honest, transparent person. You know, and just the humor you bring to everything is so lovely. And and just you know, openly talking about your sexual experiences. I think a lot of able-bodied people just never hear about that yeah, you know and yeah. it just I think just hearing your stories opens people's minds um, to you know where they're like, wow, this is the first time in my life I've heard this ever. And probably. I think
3: you know I think that's such a an important thing. I think whenever you get the chance to learn about disability, where in whatever part of your journey you're on, if somebody tells you a story and it makes you think about something differently, that's great. And I hope that these three stories, the, the thread of those stories, I think, is ableism. But I think um, that these stories can inspire somebody to think about things differently and, and confront times in their lives when they've been super ableist and need to do some work. But I hope they also made you smile and laugh a little bit.
2: Absolutely. Mission accomplished. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for this. I I always love hearing your stories and hearing you talk. And I'm really thankful that we're not done, that you're coming back for our next episode. And we're going to hear more of your stories and explore more of what we learned today further. So listeners, I invite you to come and join us too when we once again dare to open deeply.
0: Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Lurie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes and until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull Rob Barrett